0: Hello, and welcome to Dragon's Demise, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. I'm your host, Jacob. And I'm Greg B. And today, we will be reviewing Red Ravens above and below. But first, let's chat about what we've been playing lately.
1: So, we actually just finished up our first two games of a new game called Mystic Veil, uh, which I got for you for your birthday. So, happy birthday.
0: Thank you very much, and I can say that it's an awesome game. It really is. We both loved it. My roommate also played, as well as uh, your girlfriend, and it was just a really fun game. It has some really unique mechanics. It, it's a very interesting spin on the deck building game.
1: Right, and it kind of operates under this core mechanic that the company AEG is calling the Card Crafting System. Yes. Uh, Basically, instead of drafting new cards to add to your deck, your deck is always going to be 20 cards, Mm -hmm. but they're extra size. And instead of buying new cards, you buy advancements, essentially slots, that -hmm. go into those cards. And each card can support up to three different bars, tiers of things and you construct your cards from those. So you kind of have this progressive thing without ever actually swelling your deck. And so it's really about fine tuning and really coming up with a strong core strategy rather than just, you know, the beginner dominion strategy of bloat with good actions and bloat with lots of money.
0: Yes. And I really like that. It's just a lot more succinct you're always like you know exactly how quickly you're going to get to the deck it's i think it's a lot easier It might even be a good game for introductory purposes just because of the fact that it is a lot easier to use for deck building you don't you always know that you have the 20 cards in your deck and you know how many of the spoils which are the certain like bad cards pretty much in your deck and so you can count it all I've never been much of a card counter or like you know figuring out what the probabilities are of taking getting a certain card or anything like that, but this game really lets me be on an even footing with my roommate who is really big into that. He's played Magic for years. He plays Hearthstone like about every day. So when he, he's really good at that card counting mechanic and knowing what a chance he has of getting a certain card. Now with this twenty card deck it is a lot easier to just figure that out.
1: Right, it definitely puts you on even footing. One thing that I will say, it kind of can be a little bit confusing for people who have some light experience with deck builders because instead of having a traditional deck, hand, play area format, you go straight from your deck to what's called your field and you never transfer to your hand. And there's also very important rules about when something is on top of your deck, when it's in your field. That can lead to some confusion if you're you have this voice in the back of your head that says oh i've played games like this before this isn't what i'm supposed to do i'm supposed to pick this up and it can kind of cause problems that way but all in all i think from from a self-contained standpoint very well designed
0: i agree yeah it was, it was a lot of fun so i i can't wait to actually keep playing this and review it soon
1: oh absolutely yes that's definitely on the list
0: and uh-huh. it just came out so for anyone wondering it just came out at gen con 2016. So it's a very new game, just came out like two weeks ago, and I'm really glad to have gotten to play it.
1: Yeah, yeah, me too. One of the other ones we've been playing recently, I know uh, New Bedford is one that you picked up. I believe that was from Kickstarter, yeah?
0: That was, that was one of the Kickstarters. I started playing it this week, I think, and it was a lot of fun. I picked it up and played uh, one one or two rounds, and we just played recently. Right. And so that was a lot of fun. Uh, I think that it's a really fun, quick game. It has very intuitive mechanics. Absolutely. It's very quick, fast-moving. You only have two actions per turn. And the whole idea of this game... Is whaling. So the game is based on New Bedford, which is a large whaling community, and you're trying, you're modeling almost the rise of that town as well as the pretty much the decline in the whale population. Hmm. And so with that, you're building boats, you're going into uh, whaling, you're coming back, selling them, gaining money, gaining victory points, things like that. And in general, it's just a very enjoyable fast light game
1: yeah definitely very quick i mean i know it's like jacob said two actions per turn 12 turns in a, in a game you go by very quickly and it's very fast paced on each turn keeps the the game moving probably over within half an hour i think for the two of us yeah it was really quick yeah i, I would imagine it supports up to four players as usual increase the duration for for more players but I really liked how accessible it was, how quick, you know, pick-up-and-play type mm-hmm. of feel it was. And I also liked the historical aspect. You're yeah. you're really playing through—it's not just a generic game that's based on a period in time a la Ticket to Ride. Mm-hmm. No, you're actually playing not a simulation, obviously, but very much the story of this town, New Bedford. And throughout—smattered throughout the rule book. this is something that you commented yeah. on. I know you like this. They had historical notes about okay, well, in whaling terms, this is what this means, and this frequently happened. And if you look, I looked in the back of the rule book, and it mm-hmm. said, you know, historical notes sourced from, and it's like various almanacs, the New Bedford Historical Society, which is, you yeah. know, great to see that the the community was involved at least at some level in this. So I, I really appreciated that.
0: Yeah, I did too. It was a lot of fun. I just look forward to playing it a little bit more. Absolutely. Two other games that we played, we'll just go through a little bit quickly. We played Lord of the Rings Risk
1: and Game of Thrones. We did, we did, which is a little bit out of our comfort zone. You know, we don't usually go in for the super cutthroat, not even competitive, but more like conquest style games. Yeah. Um, but you know, we got invited over to a friend's house. He was saying, Hey, come on over, we'll, you know, just kick back, play some games, and that's really his style of game. Mm -hmm. So uh we had a chance to play that and we both got pretty stomped i know in lord of the rings risk that was the first one we played and it for those who haven't played it's basically risk rules except on a map of middle earth and you can play where you have an alliance so you have Mm -hmm. two players who are good and two players who are evil and we were the good side we were the the elves and the men the kingdoms of men and we We just got (laughs) got obliterated we got absolutely obliterated i think first turn the easterlings or the whoever the evil people are from the northeast corner of the map just swept in and took over half my territory and we never recovered after that so that was yeah fun i guess i don't i mean it was it was good to see yeah. friends and that was that was fun i think that just reaffirmed
0: my position on not being the biggest fan of of what is called merit thrash gaming in which you are Pretty, much, it's battle gaming. It's a, you have a map, you have war, and you're strategically placing your units, and you can get eliminated. That's actually a big part of the game, and like it, it just tends to steamroll. it's the kind of thing where like you just many of these games, not all of them, of course, but many of them, you just like once you pick up steam, the other the other team's done. Like we we mercy ruled it because yeah. even though oh, we yeah. we were in the game. It was pretty much... Yeah, the- there was no
1: coming back. It is yeah. Amerithrash. I've never heard that term. That Now that I hear it, I can definitely see how it applies to a lot of games that are out there. And, and yeah, mm-hmm. I'm going to work that into my vocab.
0: Yeah. And, well, Game of Thrones was also... I think that was a little bit better because there's a little bit more of the, the strategy elements. But... At the same time, I think it was a similar thing for me where I prefer other types of games. (laughs) It's
1: true. Yeah, it's definitely true. But uh, yeah, so that's what we've been playing lately. Mm -hmm.
0: Over the last week, I've gathered quite a few interesting things for you guys for our new segment for What's New. Now, this week, it seems that there are a lot of really cool Kickstarters, as well as some cool RPG books that have been released. So first, let me start with the Kickstarters. This year, Bézier Games released One Night Ultimate Alien on Kickstarter. Just like all the other One Night games, this is a game of social deduction and takes place just like Werewolf, except in One Night. So, everything happens in one night, there is no iterative process as the Resistance and other Mafia games have had. Instead, the game just happens, everyone does their action during the night, and then there's a debate phase where everyone talks, and then it goes to the voting. This one is Aliens, so a little bit further away from what all the other ones were, the others were all different other kinds of mythological creatures, so like werewolves, vampires, and many of those types of beings. This one goes into aliens, so it goes a little bit into the future. There's gonna be some interesting things there because they add varying powers. So now everyone is labeled from one to however many numbers of people that you have. And this really causes a difference because the aliens are gonna have powers that say you can look at someone's card whose number is lower than yours or anything like that. So that gives us a little bit more information and might actually solve some of the problems that I have with one-night games. So I'm really looking forward to this one coming out. Check it out on Kickstarter right now. The next Kickstarter that I want to talk about is from MeepleSource. MeepleSource, for those of you who don't know, makes a lot of custom meeples. The meeples are the little wooden people that you use in most board games. And for Meeple Source, this time, the Kickstarter has a few different really cool sets. First of all, there are sets for Near and Far, Scythe, Colt Express, Codenames, Champions of Midgard, and Stone Age. So if you want any of these upgrade kits for these games, they're actually really cool. They have some really nice painted figures, and they're actually at a discounted price on the Kickstarter. So I would definitely recommend taking a look. The next one that I have is The God's War. I don't know all too much about this one other than it's a game by Sandy Peterson Games. Sandy Peterson Games is also a game the manufacturer that made Theomaki, which is a game that finally came out. I don't know if I would trust the Kickstarter 100% based on Theomaki because it took a very long time for them to get that game to me, about a year after they promised it. So I would t- have your reservations on that. They have otherwise made some really good Cthulhu games, and the themes of their games and the artwork is always amazing. So if you're a fan of really beautiful-looking games and the themes, I still do recommend taking a look at it. The last Kickstarter that I want to take a look at actually ties into some of the other things that I want to talk about. So this is Ultimate Bestiary Revenge of the Horde by Nord Games. This is another book for 5e where you pretty much... Get a bunch of new creatures, mostly hordes in this case. And so it gives you some rules about how to run the hordes and the different specifications and all things like that. And the book itself looks really good, and it's a follow up to another 5e source book that they put out pretty recently. That one being Skulljuggery, the Ultimate NPCs. So this is a game that I actually, or a book that I actually bought pretty recently. I think it's really cool, it gives you some really nice fleshed out NPCs that you can use in just about any setting. They have everything from levels to what their likes, dislikes, some stories that they have, any kind of ties and things like that. So these are NPCs that you can use in just about any setting if you really need a good NPC. And the new book, The Bestiary, Revenge of the Hordes, also looks really cool because it is something that really wasn't in the Player's Handbook, so I would take a look at it. I highly recommend it. The last one that I wanted to talk about is a book that came out at the beginning of August, and this is called Tome of Beasts, and it has a companion called Book of Lairs. This is put out by Kobold Press, and I was extremely impressed with this book. Once I started taking a look at it, and I had a friend of mine who also took a look at it, we love the creatures in here. I could almost say that they could eclipse the one, which is the Monster's Manual by D&D. And the reason for that is that these creatures are unique and interesting. So you have things like a paper drake, which is a creature that can both erase and create text on a scroll. It can erase magical text, fix text, anything like that, change maps, change things. So this can have a lot of impact on the actual playing of the game and a lot of the creatures are in the same boat. So this is again by Cobalt Press for 5e, and I would highly, highly recommend this for anyone who wants to throw a wrench in their player's games, pretty much, for their D&D games. And that's it for this week for What's New. And now for the main course, our review of Above and Below. This is a game by Red Raven Games, designed by Ryan Lockhart, as all of his games are. And it's a very interesting game with the theme being pretty much your village got destroyed. Now everyone has spread out
1: and you're creating new villages. Right. You start the game really with very few resources. I think you start with three villagers, you start Mm -hmm. with a single building, really just not a lot going on. And it's all about building up that infrastructure, building up your community, and finding ways to really survive in this new environment, including the caverns below.
0: Yes, exactly. And in general, the way that that works is that the villagers themselves can be used and once they're used they each have special abilities and there's the die rolls are very important in this game because when you use a villager for a certain task they you can use a die roll to exhaust them and if it is above a certain amount then you get like a medium result and then if it's even above a larger amount then you get the optimal result so this can be done for a few different things but whenever you use a villager they go into the exhausted pile and then there are also ways for them to get injured, at which point it takes one extra round in order for them to actually get pretty much get better.
1: Right. And anyone who's played a Red Raven game, or many of them, any including Islebound, I believe City of Iron, which I personally haven't played yet. But this is a very common mechanic of his, mm-hmm. this once you roll above a certain threshold, you get of value. If you roll above a higher threshold, you get a better value. And then once you activate that villager, they're exhausted with an option to injure them for additional bonuses. He uses this in a lot of his games. So that's you know good to see some consistency there from a development standpoint.
0: Yes. And another thing that was is really cool is the consistency of the themes and the artwork. So uh, Ryan's artwork, he actually does all of his own artwork, which is really cool. Oh, wow. It's all him. He does both the game design and the artwork. Right now, he's just been joined for Near and Far by a few other people. I think that they're doing a little bit more of the storytelling and that kind of stuff within the games. But this is all happening in one world. So these are the Above and Below, Islebound, City of Iron, and Coming Soon, Near and Far. All of these games are in the same world, same universe, same races, everything like that. And he's creating this whole mythos within this world, which is really cool. And his artwork itself is just beautiful.
1: It really it's gorgeous. It's just, it's very whimsical. You mm-hmm. know, it really captures that fantasy essence, which I really appreciate because it's such a it's such a rare thing, I feel like, to find a playful fantasy setting. Really, the last couple of years, dark fantasy, you know, the rise of Game of Thrones, you've Mm -hmm. really seen kind of this movement towards the grimdark. And I appreciate that he's just saying, you know what, there's like lizard people, and Mm -hmm. they're really kind of cute. And yeah, kind of like a frog
0: person in a tunic. And one of the things and like all these other ones, and the art is just really nice and uh, really well done. Very stylized, and I think Absolutely. that I really like that stylization. It's different than the like you see some other like lighter fantasy using like the chibi stylization or something like that. One of the anime inspired for like a lot of the lighter tones. This one's not anything like that. Mm-hmm. This is very much his own style, and not something that I've seen anywhere else. It, it has like a little bit of it's a little bit plain, but at the same time, it's got like the really cool details. Like even if like the faces themselves are a little bit. Planer, they're still really cool looking, right? And like every one of the characters has its own individual type of feeling, almost. Like it feels different than than any other one, so you can't. Re- it's really hard to confuse them, almost.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And the gameplay itself is pretty cool. I, I like it a lot. It's uh, you just have to build a, your your town. You do that through using the resources that you gather. You get those either through uh, using your villagers to gather them or your houses also give you bonuses. Uh, some of them let you rest more. Some of them give you recruitment bonuses and things like that. But I think the coolest part about the game is what you can do in the caverns.
1: Oh, absolutely. And that's really kind of the the defining mechanic. It's the really the vehicle that propels the game forward because you've got the primary objective of earning the most points, which comes predominantly through buildings, but also through goods. But in order to get enough money to build buildings and pretty much universally in order to acquire goods, you have to explore by sending your villagers into the caverns. Mm -hmm. And that is where you bust out the Exploration Booklet. It's just a really nice spiral-bound booklet. It's got, I believe, 215? Yes, 215. Or so individual quests. So what happens is when you send someone down into the caverns, you first say, okay, I want to send two people, three people, whatever, and they've got different stats Mm -hmm. that give you lanterns on certain rolls, and a Mm -hmm. lot of things call for a specific number of lanterns in order to succeed. Mm -hmm. But so you first decide how many people you're going to commit, and then you pull a cavern card, which has six numbers on it, and you roll a six-sided die. And then based on the result of that, you get the quest that's keyed to that particular roll. So, for example, if I pull a cavern card and I happen to roll a five and that one says begin adventure number 175. Yeah. So then someone, I believe there's a, a rule about it. It's the person to your left or the person to your right. Yeah. Someone who's specific every time reads out the quest and they say, all right, this is a situation that you're faced with. You're in an underground cavern. There's a chill breeze and you hear a croaking from down the way or something, you know, just very, very fun, classic fantasy. You're called on to respond and you can respond in a number of different ways. The key part is that they don't tell you
0: what the result of your action is.
1: Right. Very important.
0: So when you're told, you could say like there's a croaking in there and they can give you, uh, do you go and explore it or do you ignore it? right? And you have certain consequences that happen for each one of them. But exploring it might cost a little bit more in terms of lanterns, and it might even be impossible for you to do. Maybe impossible, or maybe you have to injure a villager, so you have to take that risk and see what will happen. But then uh, you get the resolution of it, as well as goods or some other kind of benefit. The stories themselves are a lot of fun. It's got a lot of different encounters with the different denizens of the under uh, like whatever is under there in the cavern and like there are fish people there are other things there are like a lot of different plants and creatures there's i think one of them was like with a dancing mushroom that like you went and like you, there's a you, like,
1: uh, glow cat something like or a glow something
0: yeah And so you get all these little stories. You have 215 little stories that just go based on this. And and some of them even go, and if you choose you know option A or option B, it'll say, if you choose option A, go to this number. If you chose option B, go to this number. So it's almost like you're sort of playing a choose-your-own-adventure book, but you have a lot more game mechanics, and you can make up much of the story yourself, too. So I think that it's just the game booklet itself is the key part of this game. It's one of my favorite things, and it turns this from just a regular worker placement game into a storytelling game. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think everyone, like, there's not a single person that I've played with that has been bored during other people's turns when they've been exploring. Because everyone's just like, what's going to be the next adventure? What's going to be the next thing that is drawn? Like, what's he going to find? What's he going to get? Is he going to be able to succeed in helping this this person or fail? Or, you know, he's trying to steal from this other other creature, but it's really hard and he barely has enough to do it. Like, can, can he actually figure it out? Can he actually do it? And so I think it's a game that really can get everyone involved, even if it's not their turn.
1: Right. And I think that's definitely a point in its favor, because I'm no game designer, and I readily admit that. But it seems like it would have been very easy to just say, okay, when you go down to explore the caverns, there's a mechanical process that you follow. You roll some dice, you maybe flip a coin. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But then the result happens. You just get a result. And it would have been so easy to skip all of this effort of writing these 215 different storylets for Mm -hmm. the possibilities that could occur. And I think that's very true. It changes it from just a worker placement game into a storytelling game into a world building exercise, because you're as much as they have built this world, you're being invited in to be a participant Mm -hmm. in crafting that world and crafting that story. And I really, really enjoy that.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's, it's, my favorite part is because I like being you know, a DM. I like telling stories. I like this kind of thing. I really like that, that uh, each one is different. I really haven't run into the same ones more than once. Personally, I think that with the 215 that are available, it's really hard to draw the same card and roll the same number as you did in the past. And even if you do, it's likely gonna happen about like five or six playthroughs after you've done it and you'll totally forget what the heck happened. Right. So there is an argument for a little bit less uh, replayability, but I think that it's a little bit downplayed through that. The other thing is, though, that there is an expansion already to this. It came out with a Kickstarter. It's now, I think, finally being in print through the Near and Far uh, Kickstarter. You might be able to get it as well on the uh, website. And that adds another hundred different stories.
1: Wow. Okay. Yeah. So definitely up in the replayability and giving it a little more variability.
0: Yes, exactly. So you you can download the pieces, you can buy like the the extra the extra pieces, download the book, and it just, you know, adds in immediately. There's I think one or two new mechanics. I haven't gotten to play with it yet. But it really does add even more replayability, which I really appreciate
1: definitely definitely in terms of some of the the scoring mechanics again the apparatus around this core mechanic a lot of things that are very similar for people who are fans of the worker placement genre so with the goods there's i believe nine different types of goods yes. ranging from very common things like fish mm-hmm. mushrooms up to a little bit rarer things like ore and then at the extremely rare end of the scale they're crystal, gems. gems crystals i believe they're called mm-hmm. Those will be much less common, but there's no inherent value in the goods themselves. Instead, as you acquire each new type of good, you get to place it on a track along the bottom of your player board, yeah. and then the value of each good scales based on what placement it is on the board. So again, you see it with Five Tribes, you see it with a lot of Red Ravens other games where the more variety you get, the more you can maximize the amount of money that you get, mm-hmm. which in turn allows you to buy better buildings, allow you to really power through. Because I know with the buildings, you've got kind of your run-of-the-mill structures where it's a house that gives you an extra bed to rest. Maybe it gives you access to one or two pottery, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But then you've also got key structures, which are generally pretty cheap, but give you access to unique things. And star structures, which are really where you get a book of your victory points from. They give you Nine, ten victory points outright, plus an additional 1 per 2 goods, Mm -hmm. plus an additional 1 per 2 villagers. Those are really the engines, and they're quite expensive. So if you can get those goods, that really powers you through.
0: Yes, and then with that, another way of doing the victory points is actually through the exploration. You have a reputation to uphold, and depending on your choices there, you do have a little bit of even a morality engine in the game, which is interesting for a board game, because you can choose decisions that are you know amoral but at the same time give you more goods but then you lose points on the morality track which actually takes away from your total victory points mm-hmm. or if you' want to be really good you can do you can get less goods but go all the way down to the top amount on the morality track, I think it's another seven points that you can get. That sounds right. And so that really can up your score and take you from, you know, being equal to someone else in the game, but you were the one who did more of the moral decisions versus the amoral ones. And so you managed to uh, go past
1: them. Right. And a lot of times it's not always obvious either because you can say, okay, do I rob this dude or do I leave him alone? And on the one hand, there's a consideration of, okay, well, one thing is the right thing to do and will gain me reputation versus the other thing is wrong. Sometimes that's not the way the story's written. And instead, the way the story is written is if you do rob the guy, you get some good stuff. And if you ignore him, there's no real penalty or benefit. So mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting from the sense of you can't always follow like a hard and fast rule. You kind of just have to go with whatever sort of story you want to craft. And again, that's really them bringing you into this, this atmosphere.
0: Exactly. And all this to create your village on Topless Hill. So, to finish it up, let's see what we think of this game. Uh, so what is your rating on this?
1: You know, I've been hovering back and forth between a play it and a buy it, mostly citing those issues with replayability, but especially with the new expansion coming out, I'm going to go with a buy it. You've got 315 plus different stories. Buy it, play with your friends, hopefully never repeat one.
0: I'm going to echo that because, for me, it is uh, easy buy it. I love storytelling games. I love anything kind of like that. I think that this is actually going to go be the first game that I put on my top shelf. Oh, man. So I believe that Above and Below is the best storytelling game that I have played to date, other than, of course, RPGs. Oh, of course. But in terms of a board game that tells a really good story, it might even edge out Robinson Crusoe, but I'm not sure. I think it might be. It, it's its on par, I'd say.
1: That's some stiff competition, but I think you could be right.
0: So it's going on my top shelf. All right. There you have it. Our review of Above and
1: Below. <music> Thank you for joining us this time for our review of Above and Below, and don't forget to tune in for our coverage of Washington coming up the weekend of September 10th and 11th. And of course, if you're in the area, or if you've traveled from across the country, find us on the con floor. We'll be interviewing uh, game developers. We'll be, hopefully, finding some time to play some games with those game developers, or even inviting you for an opportunity to play games with them. And we'll be providing, you know, really a view from the con floor of how are people enjoying it? What's your best purchase? see how it goes don't forget to tune in for our youtube channel
0: which may have live streaming from the convention floor so we are trying we are working on that we'll see whether it actually happens or not but we hope either way you tune into our coverage and tune in next time for our review of evolution and evolution flight